Hello and welcome to the Sense Network podcast. This six-part series was recorded at our National Advice Forum in 2019 and features industry thought leaders and financial advisors with a focus on advisor development. If you'd like to hear more about how Sense can help support your business, get in touch at sense-network.co.uk. For now though, on with the podcast. Hi guys, welcome back. Um, I, I'm going to uh, not eat into any time here. I'm going to pass over to Rory for our next session. Um, uh, Rory, as, as you probably picked up, um, is now one of uh, Sense Network's non-exec directors. Um, I'm, and, and that, amongst many other reasons, makes him ideally positioned to do a session on uh, Regulatory Horizon. Um, I, I did promise an awful lot of you uh, at, at recent events, especially at the last pension event, that I wouldn't do and wouldn't be doing a session on DB transfers. And, and I stick to my um, um, promise there. I am not doing a session on DB transfers. <laughs> However, on that note, Rory, all yours, sir. Thank you very much. Thanks, John. Morning, everyone. What's the FCA looking at at the moment? So it's going to be a little bit of a, a runaround session on a few things. Yes, there'll be DB transfers, but there'll be some of my other favourite subjects as well. Um, so just to give you a flavour of what I think the regulators thinking about and what might it might be focusing on uh, you know in the next one two or so years so what are they db transfers we all know that's already and will continue to be on the fca's radar i'll talk briefly about drawdown now we've got abraham talking later uh, about uh, retirement income strategies more broadly but i just want to make two points around drawdown uh, prod uh, my favorite subject sorry to go on about prod again and apologies if you've heard me talking about prod before but I think that is and will be a key area for the regulator going forward and leading on from that talking a little bit about your propositions what you should be thinking about when designing or reviewing the propositions that you have within your firm both an advisory perspective but also your platform selection and your investment solution your CIP CRP etc. So learning uh, objectives, usual stuff, understand a little bit more about the FCA's perspective. I'll throw in a couple of good ideas as we go through, so hopefully there might be one or two things that you can think about uh, applying within your firm. Right, uh, transfers. We had a new <coughs> consultation paper back in July, no doubt you'll be aware of, CP 1925. And I read this, and partly from the content but also very much from the tone of the document, my reaction to the FCA's paper was, bloody hell, they're really pissed off with you lot, frankly. As you know, they've been doing work on DB transfers for quite a number of years now, all the way back to uh, uh, late latter part of 2015. And their finding, uh, suitability findings are typically only around 50%, which compares very unfavorably with the market figures that they had as the assessing suitability review, which were 93% suitable. So 50% suitable is, is not a position that the regulator is happy with, clearly, and that's why they're going to carry on doing work. It's also a real problem for the SCA's perspective because they are in the position where they cannot stop doing work, whether it's supervisory or policy, on DB transfers until it sees those kind of results improve quite significantly. So unfortunately, 
don't shoot the messenger, but that's going to carry on. So if you are involved in DB transfers, one of the key things I want to get across to you, and I, you know, I know this is the room of the good guys, but one of the things I want to get across to you is when the FCA are looking at this market, the problem isn't limited to a small number of bad firms. It's much more widespread that, than that. And I, I'm pretty sure about that because of the way they have talked about the issues. I'm also pretty sure with that because I was in a meeting room recently and I made that observation. And although they didn't respond to me directly with words, they responded to me quite clearly with their, with their um, um, uh, uh, physical response. But yes, that's the problem that they see. It's much more widespread than that. So one of my messages is, hard one perhaps, it might be you. You need to think about how you give advice in the DB area. I think there is a fundamental difference of understanding and interpretation of what suitability looks like in the sector versus the FCA's view. And I think one of the things, that, the one tip that I would give you when looking at DB transfer cases is to think about the mindset and if applicable, adjust the mindset when looking at a case away from how can I um, rationalize, how can I make a case for doing a transfer that meets the client's objectives, move away from that mindset towards a position that is, what can I do to make the client's or meet the client's objectives that doesn't involve a transfer? and explore and examine all of those other alternatives and only recommend the transfer it is really the last resort way of meeting the client's objectives. Okay. It's mindset shift there, because I think that's, well, I am confident that that's how the, the FCA view it. And in fact, there's some guidance within COBS 19, the handbook, that very much flags up that that's what they expect you to be doing. Okay. Right, anyway, back to the paper itself. Um, the big news item, of course, was the ban on contingent charging. You'll all, you'll be, all be familiar with this. But actually, I mean, I've always personally been a big advocate of uh, non-contingent charging, not just for DB transfers, but across the market. And I think in, in the long term, 10, and I'm talking 10, 15 years, I think that's the way the market will go. Because that's being remunerated for the value that you bring, which is in the advice and the planning, rather than in the transaction side. So it better reflects what you actually do and the benefits you bring to clients. However, I don't feel comfortable with the way that they are suggesting a ban on contingent charging. A lot of firms now have um, a contingent a non-contingent charging for the stay or go analysis. And then they'll have a, a typically a percentage charge follow-on separate fee for if the transfer goes ahead, where does it go to implementation, etc. That's where firms do non-contingent charging now. That's the typical model. The FCA have referred that as the hybrid contingent. So it's partly contingent, partly non-contingent. But that's banned too. You have to charge an all-in price stay or go plus, if it is go, where does it go to? And I think that bundling, I, I, don't, feel, I don't feel works particularly well because it generates other biases that may not achieve the, the policy objective. But that's, that's what's being proposed. Do I think they'll move from that? 
No. Um, they might move to a splitting bit that I'm talking about, so the existing non-contingent basis that firms operate might be allowed, but I'm not too optimistic, frankly. They are forced into taking a heavy-handed approach because of the results that they keep seeing here. So they're unlikely to wind back that much, I would have thought. Some triage clarification. So, you know, I'm sure we've got processes around this, but it's triage is very much uh, generic information. So if you have flowcharts or uh, red, amber, green kind of stuff that's based on the client circumstances, that's, that's advice, that's not triage. A bridge device. Um, I, there's been a lot of bad press and bad response by advisors to a bridge device, which I think is a bit unfortunate because actually I think the FCA being quite pragmatic and are trying to be helpful to you with introducing a bridge device. If we go back a couple of steps, a couple of years ago, a lot of advisor firms see a client coming in, and maybe you still do this. If you do, you need to stop it. Um, we'll see, look at the client, and it's a case where it's a no-brainer you stay where they are. And there are plenty of clients where that's pretty straightforward. So only pension, they're very cautious, you know, they need that to live on. You know, you're going to say, stay where you are. And historically, advisors would be helpful to the clients. They'll say, that's great. Keep it where it is. You don't need to move that. You don't need to go through this expensive for device process. Just leave it there. The FCA came up last year, or uh, the year before, actually, and said, you've just given a regulated advice. You can't do that. So that's when they came up with the idea of triage, which is filtering out some clients that you might want to do that. But of course, some clients, it is fairly straightforward that they should stay where they are. So actually, a bridge device is kind of going back to what the market was doing two years ago and wants to do, which is to say to some clients, don't, you know, don't do that. That's fine. And then there's a simpler process. It's still advice. Still don't need to do a suitability report. But you don't need to do the full TVC app to et cetera. So it's a simpler approach. We'll see if that, you know, but that's been received quite negatively. Need to consider workplace schemes. Um, I'm not going to go into detail about that. Um, additional disclosures, these rather naff one-page disclosures that you have to put at the front of your suitability reports. Um, CPD, 15 hours just on DB transfers, five of which have to be external to the, uh, to the firm that you work for. That's quite, that's quite onerous. Um, but again, I suspect that will stay. And some other bits, Bob's about data collection if you're doing cash flow planning bases on which you need to do that. Right, move on from that. Come on, thank you. Prod, that's not what I'm talking about. Next, I must have jumped one. There we are. Drawdown. When I was at the FCA, uh, which I left just over three years ago now, um, I remember during George Osborne's budget in 2014, when he introduced pension freedoms that were going to come in in 2015, and we stood, sat around going, what's he done? My God. All the bad things that could, we're regulators, we always think about what the bad things that could happen. Obviously, there's a lot of positive things too, but our automatic reaction is what were the bad things. And that was a real concern. And the pension freedoms, of course, people making poor decisions around uh, their retirement planning, lots of biases that come into play amongst uh, clients. You know, prospect for people running out of money, using the money too early, and all the rest of it. Do you know from on a non-advised basis, anybody know what percentage of people, when accessing their pensions now, 
or in last tax year, did a full encashment of their whole of their pension pot. It's 55%. Now, obviously, that doesn't happen in the advised market, but at the time, we were concerned about retirement income planning more generally. Of course, all of the news has been the subset that is DB transfers because of the, you know, the issues around that and the poor results at the FCA and BSPS and all of that. But I'm convinced the FCA would love to be doing some uh, supervisory work on DB, on drawdown more broadly, but just don't have the resource to do that at the moment because they're too busy doing this massive DB transfer stuff. John mentioned it earlier about the, the visit uh, on DB transfers uh, to Sense. 90 firms they're seeing at the moment. This is a huge resource for the regulator. Okay. So, two things I'll say about that. One is it's very much on the FCA's radar, and it will be something that they will look about uh, in a concerted way at some point when they're able to. The other one I would say is, I think we need to do something collective about what good retirement income uh, strategies look like. Now, this spawned from a, uh, a, some awards judging I was doing uh, at the back end of last year, almost a year ago. And I was looking at these 23 entries for this awards. Um, and it was a retirement planning piece, retirement income piece. And the answers were all over the place, not in terms of being wrong, well, actually, there was a problem because three of them were unsuitable, which is not great for an awards entry, <laughs> frankly. Um, but the answers were all over the place in terms of different ways of meeting that client's objectives. There were certain similarities around topping up the state pension, reducing the uh, level of withdrawals that they were taking now that the state pension was coming in and things like that, to help the tax planning side. But there was no broad consistency across anything around, around the piece. And I thought that was really odd. And I still think that's really odd. The fact that we don't, as a market, as a sector, we don't ever have a common understanding of what good retirement income planning looks like, where there's a consensus around that. There's lots of individuals in the market who will have views, and obviously Abraham will give his later. Um, I fall into that category too. I have views about what income, retirement income strategies work and don't work. But there's, that's, that's, that's not the point. We ought to collectively have a view on what good retirement income planning looks like. And this is not down to a sort of prescribed detailed level. This is more down to having some commonly understood high-level protocols. So things like the preeminence of, 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 of um, tax planning within that, so not causing unnecessary tax. You might think that's obvious, but that was the cause of the unsuitable cases that I mentioned a moment ago in these award submissions. Okay. Um, also, how you think about and how you deal with the trade-offs between security and flexibility. Because we were in this slightly odd market where you've got, on the one hand, you've got DB schemes and annuities that provide secure income for life, but no flexibility. 
And then you've got the diametrically opposite thing of drawdown that gives you complete flexibility but no security. Pulls apart. And how do you manage the trade-off? One little takeaway for you now is, as part of your discussions with clients at the fact-finding stage, you need to ask some questions that you're probably not asking them at the moment. If you look in COBS 19, um, which is the bit of the handbook that talks about DB transfers, it gives some guidance around asking clients their views on basically this issue, this trade-off between security and flexibility. What are their views about the DB scheme? What are their views about drawdown? Now that's called the attitude to transfer risk. You'll have heard of the expression. Okay? You need to ask the client about the attitude to transfer risk. Please don't use that expression because it's a clunky, horrible expression. It's about the trade-off between security and flexibility. But of course, although the FCA are talking about that in the context of DB transfers, I very, very, very strongly encourage you to think about asking those same kind of questions for any at-retirement client, including the DC-only clients. Get the clients feel about those trade-offs. So as a market, we're not even asking those questions at the moment, but we also don't understand how to deal with the trade-offs. Re I'll rephrase that. We all have our own views about how to deal with it. We don't have a consensus about how best to deal with those trade-offs between security and flexibility. Okay. Right, move on to prod. Um, product intervention and product governance handbook was part of the MIFID II, so we're almost two years into this. Um, when I first started talking about prod um, two years ago now, you know, I'd get people to stick their hands up if they had ever heard of it, and you know, I was getting naught or one. And I keep doing that. I'm not going to do it today, because I know you know, all know about it. Um, but it, I have been doing that quite recently, and I'm still getting the rumors where we're only getting 50, 60% of hands going up. Even heard about this set of rules that are coming in. And I think this is a really critical area for the regulator <coughs> going forward, as, as I'll come on to in a minute. But it, I'll go back in history a bit. When I was at the regulator, um, FSA, we're going back a long time now, we did a project on centralized investment project, um, propositions and replacement business. And there was a bit of guidance that came out in 2012, so we're going back a long time now. And we did a series of workshops, a colleague of mine, uh, Chris Hewitt and I, we did a series of workshops around the country on the findings. Uh, and we had two slides in here, and I've, I've, I've cut off the F FSA logo here, but this is one of the two slides. And we talked about the two-stage process of suitability. Stage one is the designing your proposition. In the context here, we were talking about centralized investment proposition, but you can say the same about your platform selection and your advisory services as well. Your proposition. As a firm, this is how we do it. Okay? You create that framework. And we talked about that and the fact that you, you, know, you should go through this kind of process. I won't go through it in detail. Okay? And then we talked about stage two. Ignore the bullet points. Stage two is individual suitability. So you've got a framework within your firm, but then individual clients come in and you give them individual advice that is suitable for their particular circumstances, which is great. Historically, we're very, the sector's very good at the second part. 
Historically, we've always had rules around the second stage, around suitability, the suitability rules, and uh, uh, ditto the, some principles around suitability as well. So we've had that since 87, when, oh, sorry, 88, when uh, regulation first came in. But we've never had any rules around stage one. Now, 10, 15 years ago, firms weren't really doing, or most firms weren't really doing stage one. A lot of firms worked on the basis of, you know, we've got five advisors here, we all do our own thing, but we just worked collectively together to save on admin and all the rest of it. And you didn't have a proposition, you didn't have a centralized investment proposition. Okay. Um, so it kind of particularly wasn't necessary at the time. But as the market developed and as the market's development was accelerated by the RDR, we've all got centralized investment propositions now. We've all got a, a service proposition. We've all got an approach to platform selection. But we've never had rules around that stage one. Now, Prod has had a lot of flack in the market and from advisors and from uh, uh, people around the market. But actually, all it is doing is putting a set of rules around stage one, which kind of should have been around for quite a long time. Actually, they have. We've had the responsibilities of product providers and distributors, the RPPD. Have you heard of that? No, nobody's heard of that. Um, but that's guidance rather than rules. So it's very simple in concept. You need to think about who your clients are. You need to think about what they provide, providers, and make sure that the right things that they do end up with the right ones over there, right clients over there. Conceptually, it's not very difficult. So you need to assess what provider's target market is in terms of the end client. That's kind of the easy tick box bit because frankly, it's pretty straightforward because most products, most investments are fairly commoditized certainly in the investment funds side of things. Our target market is clients who are able to invest at this risk level. Yeah, okay, that's fine. That's who we're recommending it to. Okay. Sometimes it might be a little more detail, like uh, this is a, a, an all-in-one solution, so it's a multi-asset fund, so you can use this on its own. Or you know, this is a UK equity fund. It's designed to be, it's a composite fund. It's designed to be part of a, wider portfolio rather than being sold on its own. You might get things like that. But it, those are going to be pretty straightforward. Mike probably knows a heck of a lot more about what they look like than I do. Um, but I think more broadly, I think the good practice way of dealing with prod is to use it as a framework for designing stroke reviewing your propositions in terms of advisory services, platform selection, and your centralized investment proposition. Okay. So going back to the slide we had here that I talked about at the FSA seven years ago, starting with client segmentation. In practice, that's kind of what we're looking at. Review your client bank, segment your clients, and the proportion of firms where segmentation is appropriate, I would say is approximately 100%. I have had people say, I've only got 50 clients, I don't need to segment. Well, actually, I went... I did some consultancy with a one-person advisor firm uh, about 18 months ago, and he, he was in that exact situation. So I got 50 clients, no, maybe it wasn't 50, it was 70 clients, uh, and they're all retired. So I've only got one segment, which is retired clients. 
And actually, when we went through the cons consultative process, and I talked to him a little bit more about his clients, we ended up with six segments, actually, about whether they're high, low income, and, and various other factors. And that influenced the nature of the services and the inf influenced the nature of the investment solutions that he was recommending, given, on the, given the, 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 those sub-segments. And then you need to map, and this is the bit, uh, frankly, I don't think is done very well in the market. You need to map your solutions, services, KIP, platform, to your segments of your clients. Now, I said we haven't had rules around this historically. Well, we haven't. We've only had them for the last couple of years under prod. Whereas we have had rules around suitability, stage two, all of that time. We're good as a sector on suitability, maybe putting DB to one side. But generally, we're good at suitability, individual suitability. But I would say I don't think the market's very good at this stage one, this designing the propositions. I don't think it works particularly well in a client-centric way to have clients who are, you know, you only have one service proposition for all your, your clients. Certainly if you've got a diverse uh, client bank, I don't think that works. I don't think that's client-centric. Ditto, if you've only got one platform, I don't think that works for a diverse. If your clients are all retired, then and in a, you know, quite homogenous or quite a narrow category, maybe. But firms who have got a range of different clients, some in the accumulation stage, some in the decumulation stage, frankly, I don't think one platform works. Um, when I was at the FCA, I, I used to get asked about, you know, can I be independent and have one platform? It was my most favorite question we received. I got so fed up the question, we wrote, there's a FCA fact sheet on, can you do that? Um, but you could, I, at the FCA, I could never be precise. I could never say, no, it needs to be X. But now I'm not at the FCA, I can be more specific. I think the answer is, you know, how many platforms should you use? I think the answer for most firms is two. Occasionally, three. Two platforms, one simple, low-cost accumulation, doesn't need to do very much. And the other one is uh, a more bells and whistles for the clients for whom that's necessary, particularly in the decumulation stage. Okay. You might need a third one for... To, uh, different types of clients, for example, very uh, complex clients or DFNs not available on the others or things like that. But I think typically it would be two or three. But you don't know that until you've gone through this mapping exercise. The way I suggest you do the mapping is using a, a table like this. This is, this is entirely optional. And I know you've had your information about uh, prod and requirements under prod. But this is kind of my sort of good practice way of doing it. This is my, my view on the approach. So you have five columns, your main segments. Now, this is one of the other areas where I don't think the market's very good because I think it works on the basis of uh, or around, Mike will know better than me, but I think around half of firms or certainly a big proportion of firms still segment their clients and segment their services on the basis of assets under management or assets under advice. I don't think that's client-centric. I think that's firm-centric. That's, well, if they've got more money, we get more income, therefore we can provide more services. That's firm-centric. I think a better segmentation, primary segmentation, uh, is along life stage because I think people at different life stages have different needs in terms of what the advice looks like 
And so collectively, they, they work better as a, as a subset. So young accumulators, serious about retirement. These are people who, 45, 50, 55, suddenly start to think, and oh, well, hang on a minute. Retirement's not a million miles off anymore. Have I got enough? I need to make sure I actually be able to retire when I want to. Glide, oh, glide path, I hate that word. Transition into retirement. Uh, my stage, when they're starting to wind down work and then starting to go into the decumulation phase. Okay. Lots of dynamics and moving parts going on there. The nature of the advice to that category is clearly very, very different to the nature of the advice to the young accumulators who are just ISAs and pensions and building up their wealth. Okay. Uh, retirement income, now fully uh, uh, dependent on that retirement income. So one of the other things I think we should collectively agree, going back to my comments about drawdown, the high-level protocols, people in the, the latter categories, transition into retirement and retirement income, I think cash flow planning should be routine for all of those clients to ensure that they've got the income that they need and doing the stress testing on that to ensure that that's still going to last and they can do the things that they want to do. Okay. So I'm not going to do that. You'll be pleased to hear I'm not going to fill the whole table here, but I'm just going to give a couple of examples. So then you sub-segment. So for example, within the young, young accumulators, you might have those with very simple needs, building up ISAs and pensions, and that's about it, really. But then you might have uh, small business owners where there's some extra things like um, advising them on their remuneration strategies, etc. Okay. Um, at the other end of the... So for simple needs, you probably want a fairly low maintenance kip you don't probably don't generically want a uh, your own in-house model portfolio that you have to review every year that's probably over the top for that kind of client multi-asset fund mps something that looks after itself is probably more appropriate uh, platform selection doesn't need to do much really does it simple and low cost uh, and a fairly light touch ongoing review service as well okay not many moving parts at the other end of the scale Retirement income. So someone might be taking a high income, some might be taking little or no income. High income people, what's your centralised retirement proposition? What do you mean you haven't got one? This is what I was saying earlier about a common view within the market about what good retirement income strategies look like. The starting, we need that across the market, but we, the starting point is individual firms to have their own centralised retirement proposition. CRP isn't different portfolios, it's how do you organise retirement income for clients and how do you give advice in that area. Okay. That's a different presentation. But for if clients are taking little or no income, it can be your normal KIP, can't it? Because it hasn't got those dynamics around taking the, the high level of income and sustainability and is that an issue? Okay. But when it comes to your platform, there's different criteria here that are relevant for this segment, i.e. about the withdrawal functionality and can it do the stuff that you need it to do for people who are taking money out, who are decumulating. So that becomes one of your key must-have criteria when you do your platform selection consideration stroke review. And then for retirement income clients, standard planning plus the cash flow planning will be routine. Maybe, maybe you don't need the cash flow planning if they've got loads of money and don't need to take the income or got lots of other sources of income. So that's one possible way of doing it. The other thing you need to think about when putting together your propositions is around cost. 
Now, Frod, helpfully, albeit not extensively, talks about three things you need to look at when you're doing um, your, if you like, your due diligence on your solutions that you're looking at, whether it's investment solutions or platform selections, take it in the same way, I would suggest. Cost, service, and financial strength. Fairly straightforward, fairly non-contentious, and I would suggest those are minimum things that you would look at uh, when you're looking at uh, your, your selection process. But cost is quite an interesting one. So Prod kind of says you need to include that as part of your stage one analysis. You're building your framework, so you need to build that in. And then stage two, the individual suitability piece, it says something very, very interesting in COBS 9, which is the main handbook for suitability, okay, handbook section. This rule, I think, is really, really significant. And there hasn't really been much discussion about this in the marketplace. It's a bit waffly, but basically what it says is if something else in the market is cheaper or less complex and meets the requirements of what the client's looking for, meets their objectives, profile in, in, the, in the wording here, that's what you should recommend. So if you flip that around, what it's saying is, if you are recommending something that is more expensive or more complex than something else, you need to have a good reason for that that's relevant for that client. So actually, I put it down there as a stage two thing, but it's also something you need to think about at your stage one design of your proposition. Now, two things come out of that for me. One is around platforms. Platforms charge all sorts of different levels. And I do get a lot of advisors say to me, oh, yeah, and quite good advisors too, apparently, um, say to me, oh, yeah, but platform costs are all about the same, really. It's not much in it. A few bits here and there. It's not. Well, look at Mike's. You've got the, the guides out there, haven't you? You look at the heat maps from the Landcat. There's some very red bits on them. That means they're really expensive compared to other solutions for clients at that level of investment. Okay. So you need the cost is a, there are big differences, often around the outliers, but you need to make sure that that map, mapping mapping's worked effectively, because kind of the the question that you might get from the FCA supervisor is, look, there are some platforms out there that cost twenty bips, and you're using one that costs thirty five bips. What extra value is that fifteen bips providing to that client? You need a good answer for that, and that needs to be written down as part of your due diligence process for which platforms you use. Okay. Now, if you're doing better mapping, maybe that 20-bit works for the low-cost one that we were talking about in the previous segments in the table. And maybe the 35-bit works for the complex clients in the transition and they need to be doing lots of different things at different times and all the rest of it. And maybe that's for your rationale, but you need to have that rationale. You need to have gone through that thought process. Investment funds is the other one. Passive, cheap, active, more expensive. Passive then becomes kind of the benchmark, doesn't it? Now, you, you'll ask us FCA person this, and they'll say, absolutely, no, that's not the case. But in practice, the implication of that rule is passive becomes the benchmark. And if you're recommending active funds, and from previous events, I, people put their hands up, it seems like most people blend 
active and passive these days. Um, where you're using active managed funds, the same concept. There is, a, there is something that's cheaper and less complex in the market, passive, that can meet the client's profile. So if you're doing active, you need to be able to demonstrate that that's value for the client in doing that. And so that then becomes part of your investment committee process and your due diligence and your um, investment selection process. More cost, what's the rationale for that? That's quite challenging, being able to demonstrate the value of active management. We all know that. And I'm not saying it has to be passive, absolutely not. But what I am saying is that rule says you have to have a reason for recommending what you're recommending. And write it down as well. Right, we have eight minutes. Gosh, I didn't rant as much as I normally do. We have eight minutes for questions. This is the bit I like most, actually. We have one over here. Brilliant. There's a mic on its way round. I don't know how booming your voice is, but the mic might be better. <laughs> you mentioned um, in Prod that you look at financial strengths. Um, cost and, yeah. and service. The first yes. two of those are quite easy to analyze. Yes. Um, how would you kind of look at documenting the service? Surely that's quite subjective. Yeah, okay. So, quite right. This is a bit of an issue, and the FCA have talked about this, although not in published form, I don't think. Um, I can tell you what it isn't in relation to platforms at the moment, because this is, this is quite common. Almost then, you might even say, goes to far say, this response is endemic, particularly among certain platform users, and I won't mention a particular platform name, because it's quite a reputable firm, but it does concern me if firms have been using the same platform for 15 years. And they say, yes, but it's great service, they get everything sorted if there's a problem, um, keeps winning lots of rewards for service, um, we love it, clients love it, it's no problem. There's, there's two problems with that comment, and that comment is common, and I've heard that a lot. One is, um, the clients love it. No, they don't. They love having a platform. They don't love that platform and hate all the other platforms. They don't have any experience of all the other platforms. So that argument, frankly, goes out the window. The other point is, you're just talking about your existing experience with that platform. Well, that's fine, but it doesn't mean other platforms don't provide good service as well. Most platforms will provide good service, otherwise they wouldn't have any advisory clients. Okay. So you can't just say, well, we're happy where we are, we don't need to move. That's the first thing. How do you find out about service standards? Well, there are things like uh, service ratings, service awards. Mike might have stuff with the Lancat about service standards see him. Um, so there is information that's generally available. The other thing I would say is just a suggestion. When I was at the FCA and we were doing the KIP project, I visited one firm um, and they, partly because they had, they got lots of platforms that they were using and it's probably not unusual, largely because it was a historic basis or the fact that clients were coming with existing platforms. So they had experience of quite a number of different platforms. And they were record on a central um, spreadsheet, something simple, uh, all the good and poor 
experiences of their platforms that they would have. So that when they came for their annual review of their platforms, their platform selection, they had some real data there to say, actually, these ones work better than these ones. So that would be an, another option. But there is, there is information out there available. Yeah. One in the front here. How do you deal with the, um, the race to the bottom in terms of platform costs? Because we've noticed that, you know, with some of our platforms, some are, being, some are looking quite expensive now. And mm -hmm. it's not easy to suddenly move £60 million from one platform for another, to another if you've identified a cheaper platform to yeah. do the same thing. Yeah. Um, am I allowed to do adverts? It doesn't, it doesn't help me. There's no money involved because it's, it's been paid for and done. Um, if you go on the AJ Bell Advisor Hub, there is a guide written by uh, about bulk platform switching. Yeah. Um, you say the race to the bottom. Um, I don't want to give the impression the FCA expect everything to be the lowest cost. It is, as you will have heard from all sorts of stuff that the FCA have been saying in the last couple of years, it is fixated with value for money. So it is not a case of going for the lowest cost. It is a case of having value justifications for the costs that you incur. Yeah, and I think as a firm, you know, we want to um, make sure that our clients are paying the lowest possible cost. But yeah. how as a firm, you know, do we pass that cost on to the client? Because it's not something we can absorb as a firm. Absolutely, yeah. Firms are commercial. You, you, you have costs. You need to make a profit. The payers of your cost are the, uh, the client, so that's, that's how it works. Yeah, but then when you kind of analyse it to the end user of the individual client, it's a relatively small saving for them to kind of move something for 15 bips. One of the... <clears throat> the FCA don't expect you to do platform switches for clients, either individually or collectively, unless it's the right thing to do. It's not a case of, you know, this other platform is four bips cheaper, therefore we have to move, because that's probably not worthwhile doing that. Part of your analysis would be that cost-benefit analysis. It's going to cost this much to move platform individually and collectively. For the, for the client's perspective, does that make sense? Is that in their best interest? The good news is it's not like the FCA are expecting you to do something that it's got on its agenda. The judgment is about what's the best interest for the client, your client. And you're the best person to know that. So if you've gone through the right process, i.e. you've thought about this, you've looked at the numbers, you've come up to, with a decision of an evidence-based approach, that's what they're expecting you to do. If you've done that, they won't argue with your, the option that you've taken, unless you've done something really stupid, of course. But um, if you are ex exercising your expertise and you're thinking about the client's interests, and you were going through a process to ensure that the client's interests are best interests are met, you're doing your job properly, that's all they're asking you to do. So the solution is being a good advisor. It's actually not that complex. Probably last question, given the timings. Uh, there's one other talk about for younger clients with simpler needs, with smaller pots, having a different investment proposition mm -hmm. or solution. But actually, if you're running an investment solution that is good value, delivering good mm. returns, mm. that you believe 
as a firm based on evidence is the optimal investment solution, mm-hmm. why would you then offer something different to younger clients because they have less yeah. money? Um, I, that's a fair challenge. The only thing I would say to that is two things. One is, I don't know, I'm not a planner, you are. So you're in a better position to know that than me. The second thing is, if you're running your own portfolio, that's more expensive in terms of your time and therefore the client's fees at at, uh, the annual review stage because you're doing rebalancing and maybe moving funds if they go off panel or or out of the portfolio or whatever. So therefore your service becomes more expensive. So, so long as you've taken that factor into account in your analysis and designing your framework, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. So I'm bang on time. This is really unusual for me. That's unusual for all of us. I'll hand you back to your main man. Uh, Thanks very much. If you'd like to hear more about how Sense can help support your forward-thinking IFA business, or if you'd like to see what learning resources are available for free, go to sense-network.co.uk.